again, good to see you. So we are diving into, as a church, the most controversial book in your entire Bible. If you don't know where it is, just jump all the way to the end. That's where you're going to find it. The response has been amazing. I mean, I have been, I've been bumping into people. Some folks are like, yes, finally. Finally, somebody's talking about it. I've had other people think, this freaks me out. Like, this just freaks me out. I was standing on the corner over here just walking down to my little second office down here at the little coffee shop down there. I'm on the corner, and this car comes around the corner, and this guy, like, sticks half of his body out the window and goes, Revelation! <laughs> I, I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. Anyway, last week... I overviewed the journey we're going to be taking, and I referred back to a message that I did back in March on Revelation chapter 1, and we summed up the entire journey as we're going to walk through it with these particular words. The book of Revelation was never intended to scare you, never. It was intended to show you a more complete and beautiful picture of Jesus, and we made some agreements together. We agreed we were going to be here. This summer, that's what we decided, right? So, and that means for me too, if I'm not on vacation, I'm going to be here. Now, I do have vacation coming. I'm really excited. It's going to be great. Just going to get out there in the sun. It's going to be awesome. But we agreed we were going to come. We also agreed we were going to do the whole series with a smile on our face. We we're going to take ourselves too seriously. We also agreed that we were going to hold our positions like this. Because we knew if we do this, God can't stick anything new in there because we're just like, no, no, no. And it's also, it's unbelievably arrogant to think I got this whole thing figured out and everybody just needs to listen to me. So we just went like this and said, okay, God, what would you like to show us? Well, this week we're going to move on to Revelation chapter 2. In this chapter and chapter 3, Jesus is going to talk to his kids. But before we even hear his words, I want to make sure we understand a principle. And the principle is this, Jesus loves his people enough to confront them, not just coddle them, okay? The Bible says this to be true, God disciplines those that he loves. Even though we may not like it, God disciplines those that he loves. We all know discipline doesn't feel very loving at times. There were times when my parents were disciplining me, and I mean, I wanted to sue them for parental malpractice because it didn't feel very loving. It didn't feel very good. Now that I have kids of my own, suddenly, I, maybe you've noticed this. Have you noticed how as you get older, your parents seem to have gotten more and they're just smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter, right? Ernie and Shirley to me, Back then, they're like, they knew nothing. Now they are geniuses because I have kids of my own. That's kind of how it works, right? Discipline's tough. You have to receive. And believe it or not, it's actually really tough to do well. If I had to make an admission to you, it would be I have not done this very well in my own family. I would prefer the coddling approach to parenting. I mean, let's just love each other and hug each other and call it good, you know, and just let stuff, let stuff slide. I'd rather be the encourager or the comforter than if I've fallen short in my life as a parent, it would be in this area. I have struggled so hard to have those hard conversations with my kids. And when I did, normally what happened is I would take all of my words, my confrontational words, and I, I would put them into this large explosion of emotional energy that would leave my kids and my wife like ducking for cover and asking the question like, what in the world just happened? Because dad's going to confront somebody. Boom! Right? And it's like, hmm. 
Parents, there are times when the most loving thing you can do is to confront the sin of your child. Oh, I got three amens. That was awesome. There are times when the most loving thing you can do is to confront the sin of your children. Okay? If you don't, you're not being loving, you're being enabling. It's just true, isn't it? And my Bible says that God will hold us all accountable for those decisions, whether we engage or don't engage. So Jesus is going to talk straight out, and he's going to challenge us to get to the end of verse 7 tonight. It's what we're going to get to. This is the challenge of Jesus at the end of this little discourse to his kids. He says this, whoever has ears, yeah, pretty much 100% in the room, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he's going to say some words to us. Words are powerful, okay? The Bible says words can bring life and death, blessings and curses. And in the coming chapters, Jesus is going to talk straight to his children. If you're here, just checking out Jesus, check it out church. You, you picked a great time if you enjoy watching Christians squirm. Because we're going to be squirming for the next couple of weeks. Because he's not talking to anybody else. He's talking to his own kids and he wants to set the record straight and we're going to hear all kinds of words we're going to hear some words of reward which are going to be awesome we're going to hear some words of warning which we should appreciate we're going to hear some words of rebuke which are going to be like i don't know about that we're going to hear some words of command god's going to say this is how i want this to go down and we're going to hear some words of comfort revelation chapter 2 starts with the words that god jesus sends an angel as a messenger to the church in Ephesus, okay? And you hear that, like the angel. Who in the world is that? Well, that word angel in your Bible can also be translated messenger. I said last week that you were going to hear me say on a fairly regular basis to many of these questions, a typical response, I don't know. So when you read this, some people will say, it says it's an angel. Okay. It can also be translated as messenger. And some people take that as referring to the pastor or the leader of whichever church is that God is talking to. Some other people say, no, it was a separate prophet who came and gave these words to this church in Ephesus. Which one is right, Grant? I don't know. That word can be translated in multiple ways. People, everybody, eyes front. Okay, you can't get on your horse and go, that's right. No, you have to hold it like this. What we know is that an angel or a pastor or a prophet was sent to Ephesus with these words. Like, let me show you a picture. I got a map here of Ephesus so that you can actually see where it is. It's in modern day Turkey, okay? And the city still exists. Ephesus was a port city, so it was on the water in a beautiful part of the world, and it was known for its liberal views and its lax morality. Does that sound like another city somebody might know about? Just asking the question, okay? Ephesus was home to the temple of Artemis, or as the Romans called her, Diana, okay? It was a temple, this huge structure where people would go to quote-unquote worship by engaging in temple prostitution. Okay? Just saying it like it is. I warned you last week, your kids, our programs, put them there. That would be good. Or answer uncomfortable questions on your way home. That's just how it rolls. Okay? 
It was unbelievable in this area. The temple prostitution was commonplace. It was encouraged. And believers in Ephesus were fiercely persecuted by adherents of these other pagan religions who all came to Ephesus to, to kind of do their thing. And it cost the believers dearly. It was very hard for them to separate their life out to try and be holy and righteous in the face of this much stuff happening right in the center of their town. And so this was the temptation. The temptation was to keep their new faith, but just kind of slip in and out of everything else that was happening around them. The temptation was to compromise. The temptation was to have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, whatever works for you. Does that sound familiar to a belief system in the United States of America? Whatever's good for you. In fact, there's a word for it. It's called modern therapeutic deism, which means what's good for you is good for you. Just don't you dare impose it on me. Every day, this group of people were confronted with opportunities to compromise. And to this church, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says these words. Let's watch the screens together. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. At this time in history, an emperor by the name of Domitian was ruling, and he was ruling with an iron fist. He declared himself to be a god that he was to be worshipped, and if you didn't worship him, he killed you. It was as simple as that. So if you were a follower of Christ, you didn't worship this Roman emperor, basically you died. The mission was very full of himself. He actually commissioned his own kind of currency that was to be circulated around. In fact, I have a picture of one of those coins. You'll notice the coin on your right. So we have Domitian there sitting on top of a circle, which represented the earth. And there are a number of stars around him. Can anybody count how many if you go all the way around? Seven, right? Seven. This is one of the only times Jesus gets very political at this particular time. Because if you notice what he said, he goes, I hold the seven stars in my right hand. This is my translation of what Jesus is saying to Emperor Domitian. You little punk. You think you rule? You think you reign? You think you're going to exterminate my people? You have no idea. Your little seven stars and the world and everything that you sit on top of, you're right here, my little friend. Be very, very careful. I love a God that's not afraid to call out an imposter. 
The seven golden stars are the messengers of those angels. The seven golden lampstands are symbols of the seven churches that Jesus is going to talk to. And I want to reinforce something to you because some of you are already like seven of this and seven of that. And what did that seven thing mean? I just want to say this to you. The seven stars and the seven lampstands are not nearly as important as the one who's holding on to both. Not nearly as important. And he's going to speak, and as all good parents do, Jesus starts with, with good news, right? Because you've got to accentuate the positive. We know this as parents, right? If you've got to deal some hard stuff to your kids, you normally put something positive on the front end, something positive on the back end so they don't get lost in the middle, right? And he begins with words of condemna- or co- commendation. Huh, I almost said condemnation. All right? Commendation. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know you can't tolerate wicked people and that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. And you've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. We just read that and what do we know to be true? Because immediately God begins to actually share just a little bit about his character. And here's a part of his character. God knows us. He knows our actions, our hard work, our perseverance. He knows whether or not you had a good week or a bad week. He knows whether or not Monday to Friday got better or whether it got worse. He knows what you encountered in the lunchroom at work. He knows whether or not you were persecuted for your faith or whether you just kind of got to do your own thing all week long. He knows whether you were blessed or whether you struggled. He knows you, everything about you. Secondly, God knows our discernment of truth. God knows that in this church we have an open invitation. Every single week, I invite you, bring your Bible or your app so you can test whether or not I'm lying to you. You shouldn't take it for granted that I got this right. You should show up every week and it's like, mm, with my thumb meter, right? Is this scriptural? Is it biblical or not? We don't use a thumb meter on whether or not we like it. Because sometimes the things God has to say to us, it's like, I don't like hearing that, but it's true. So God knows our discernment of truth. And thirdly, God knows how hard and long this journey of life can be. Anybody else glad in the room tonight that God knows what it means to be human? Gets that, right? How do we know that? The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us for a while. And so Jesus comes to them and he says, through this angelic messenger, however you want to define that, you guys have been doing some things really, really well. It's always nice to hear that good stuff. As the pastor here, I can say this to you. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know how hard you guys have been working. I mean, last month alone, you gave $54,000 to missions projects all over the world. I mean, how amazing is that? I've watched you be faithful in your small groups. I've watched. Some of you have been with me since that amazing Easter in 2003 when suddenly you were stuck with me, like it or not. I mean, it's been a long time and you could have run and disappeared, but you didn't. You stayed. You kept your eyes on Jesus because he's the only one that didn't disappoint you. I commend you as a church. And that's what Jesus is doing here. That's good news. Take a deep breath because here it comes. Verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. Oh, we don't like that, right? Words of rebuke. You know, he's basically saying, you're working hard, but you're leaving me out. You leave me out of your Monday to Saturday. You do your Saturday night, Sunday morning thing, and that's awesome. But between those two points in time, 
You basically go and do whatever you want to. You participate fully in compromise. And the reason I know that is because you're not in love with me anymore. You should be in love with me. Some of your translations will say that you've fallen out of love with me and with each other. I mean, the Bible actually says they know, they will know, the world will know we're Christians. Why or how? By our love for each other. So when you lose Jesus, you lose each other. That's the way that it goes. And that's what he's speaking to them about. I mean, he's saying to them, you've convinced yourself you can have a love affair with the world and you can have a relationship with Jesus on the side. And it doesn't work. I've tried it. I've done it. Oh, no, 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 no. I can, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good church kid. Look at me. I got my act together. Rest of the week, do whatever I want to, with whoever I want to, however I want to. Why? Because I'm, I'm me. And Jesus like, You don't get to have a relationship with me on the side. When it comes to Jesus, it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. What can we learn about Jesus from this rebuke? I think we can learn this. I think we can learn that God knows us better than we know ourselves, right? Because he said earlier, I know your actions, your hard work, and your perseverance. Here's what drives me crazy. He also knows my inactivity, my laziness, and how easily I give up when life gets hard. He knows both of those extremes. Secondly, God knows the difference between appearing healthy and actually being healthy. I mean, Jesus knows all of us can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. I mean, he knows that we we can put on airs and we can play a role and we can carry a great big Bible and we can pretend that, man, we are all in for Jesus. Here's the trouble with serving an all-knowing, all-seeing God. He sees us when nobody else is watching. And that's a little bit like, uh, and a little bit, mm. Jesus knows when we've replaced him. That's the next point in your outline. God knows when he's been replaced by an idol. I mean, God knows when I care more about comfort and safety and stuff than I do about him. God knows when I care more about job security and not taking faith risks and the size of my big screen, God knows when that matters to me more than he does. He knows it because he can see my life. He knows, and that's why he says this, consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. Now he's shifted to words of command. He's just calling it out. He goes, this is what I want you to do. I want you to recognize. You're going to have a whole bunch of R words here in just a couple minutes. I want you to recognize you've forsaken your first love. So here's what God wants from us tonight, Saturday night at Christ the King. He wants us to have a moment of clarity, a moment of honesty when we can recognize that we may have drifted away from God. And I'll tell you something from personal experience. Very, very rarely does anybody just, just shortly like just disappear off of God's radar. Normally, it doesn't happen instantaneously or that quickly. Normally, it's a slow, subtle, seductive drift as other little G-gods come in and vie for our attention and our purpose. And we just end up slowly drifting away and we end up in that place where we just look around and go, where in the world did God go? And we're faced with the fact that God doesn't move. But we certainly do, don't we? 
It happens in all relationships. So next week, I'll have been married to the same girl for 26 years. We've had a nice run. Hopefully, we got another 26 in front of us. But I'm amazed at how our love can actually change. I found this little deal the other day. It was called a marriage cold equation. Okay? And I remember back to the very first year when I married Laurel. And I was the attentive husband. I'm watching for everything. And maybe you've experienced this, right? In your first year of marriage, you know, your wife sniffles and this is what happens. It's like, oh, babe, I'm worried about your sniffle. I called 911 already. The ambulance is going to be here in just a couple of minutes. And I know you don't like hospital food, so I've already ordered your meals catered from the Hearthfire restaurant. And I promise I will be by your side every single day and no doctor's going to touch you unless they go through me first. That's year one. Year two. You hear a sniffle. Sweetheart, I don't like the sound of that cough. I called the doctor. He'll be making a house call. Let me walk you upstairs and tuck you into bed. Year three. Hey, you don't look so good. Why don't you drive yourself down to the walk-in clinic and pick me up a pizza on your way home? Year number four. Babe, there's a lot to get done around here. Pull it together and let's go. Year number five. Really? I can't hear the TV when you're coughing up a lung. Could you go in another room? I don't want to get sick. You know it's true, right? All the guys in the room? Yeah. You raised your hand. You're an idiot. I'm just saying, okay? I'm just saying, right? I mean, it's just this slow, gradual slide away. And one day it's just like, where all the love go? all the love go? What does God want us to do? He wants us to reflect about that for just a second. How far, long, and deep have you fallen away? So let me ask you some questions that I was asking myself this week. Never ask you to do anything I don't do myself. Wherever you are spiritually right now, however much distance there may be between you and God, how'd you get here? And who moved? What happened? Did, did you get discouraged because God didn't answer a prayer? Did you get disappointed because another follower of Jesus let you down? Did you get disillusioned because you read your newspaper and it doesn't look like God's in control to you? How did you get where you are spiritually right now? Because this is the word Jesus would say to you. However much distance is there, it's too much. And the only way home is to repent. We don't like that word. Repent. We've got to say it out loud and then turn from sin. You know what? Repentance is not that difficult when you understand who the God is that's waiting on the other side. You know, repentance can be heartbreaking. It can be because you've got to own it, right? We learn this when we do recovery work. You got to own your stuff, and that's hard. Owning your stuff, that's not for cowards. That's why most people never ever want to walk through that kind of stuff. I mean, you, the Bible says, I want you to repent, say it out loud. I stopped caring, Jesus. I drifted because I was bored. I thought I could do it on my own, Jesus. Here's my famous one I did it my way, Jesus. And God says, here's what I want from you. I want you to come back and I want you to say, not I'm sorry. 
I was wrong. Whenever we say, I'm sorry, this is a good marriage principle, right? Whenever we say, I'm sorry, there's an automatic question that comes from our spouse. Just exactly what are you sorry about, right? Because we want to know whether or not we understand. I was wrong. I've reflected on this, and now I'm choosing to turn back to you. What does God want us to do? He wants us to return. That's the next blank in your outline there. And do the things that you did at first. I mean, anybody else in the room remember what life was like when you first became a believer? I mean, you had so much joy. You were just filled with it. It just bubbled over top of you. You wanted to talk about it all the time. I mean, it consumed you. Everything was new to you. You wanted to learn and just soak like a sponge. You were, you were doing life together because you knew you couldn't do it alone. I mean, all the counterfeits in your life had just kind of shown, been shown for exactly what they were. And you, and you were experiencing the joy of your salvation. Jesus says through this messenger, you may need to go back to some of that stuff. Now you get up in the morning and you read the newspaper, which totally bums you out. Then you listen to talk radio on your way to the work, which more so even bums you out. And then you wonder why your entire day is messed up. And then you remember back to when you were a new believer and every morning you roll out of bed and the first thing out of your mouth is, what do you got in store today, Jesus? And your Bible was open and your prayer life was on fire because you felt like Jesus was right there. You may need to go back to that. You may need to go back to the fact that, that there was a time when, when you were with another group of people and you were doing life together because you learned really, really quickly that church is a team sport and following Jesus is a team sport and you're supposed to do that. But eventually you convinced yourself, I don't need any of that stuff. Todd and Grant, they don't know anything about my life. They, I am not interested. I am, no, I don't need to be with any more people. It's just me and the Seattle Mariners. How's that working out for you? Just asking, all right? You, know, just, you may need to go back to that. You may need to go back to it. And before I read the next words, I want to remind you that these words are coming from a loving father through his son Jesus who wants us to be obedient to his commands so we don't have to live through the consequences, okay? Here's what he says next to the church in Ephesus and the church of Christ the King. If you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Words of warning, right? Words of warning. If you don't repent, there's going to be a consequence and I don't want to have to do that to you, but it's your choice. I mean, I just read that, and it's so clear. Without repentance, the light goes away. Our light goes away. When you go on your own power, the light of God becomes fader and fader and fader. That's a scary thought, because I have learned this to be true. God will not like it, but he will respect our decision if we decide to embrace the darkness. He'll respect it. Take it from someone who has been there. I told God, this is how I'm going to do my life. Did he pursue me? Yes. Did he respect me and just say, okay, if that's where you want to go, then that's where you're going to go. I mean, I have learned this to be true. Unless we state, thy will be done, Jesus will say to us, then thy will be done. Jesus makes a turn because he's a good parent. 
That's tough stuff in there, isn't it? Just kind of grinds on your heart just a little bit. Started with a positive, then he tells the truth, and then he comes back to a positive. Verse 6, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He's going to go back to words of command here. Now, there are words. I want you to reject this. The practices of the Nicolaitans was a, was a doctrine of compromise and subtle seduction and sinful integration. Let me tell you about this guy named Nicholas. That's where the name Nicolaitans comes from. Okay, Nicholas was actually one of the original, like in the second and third wave of apostles that were sent out. He was actually sent out with that group. Here was the problem. He taught a doctrine of compromise and implying that you didn't need to separate yourself. You could just kind of be involved in whatever you wanted to. I mean, from early church records, it seems so just apparent that Nicholas of Antioch, that was his name. He took a little bit of occultism, a little bit of sexuality stuff, a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of Christianity. Just all roads lead to God eventually. And he just poured them in a great big pile and just said, you can take any of this that you want to. Go ahead and have some fun. He had no problem intermingling these belief systems. He had no idea why you couldn't dance a little in this circle and dance a little in that circle and that nobody had the right to tell you something was right or something was wrong. Can I tell you something about God? He has no problem telling people that's right and that's wrong. And we don't need to like it but he will shoot straight. Why? Because he loves us. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was encouraging compromise. And I want to underline what Jesus says about that. It doesn't say he mildly dislikes it to the point where he's somewhat bothered. It doesn't say that it gives him a bit of a pit in his stomach, but he can call it good because he's somewhat understandable of our human condition. No, uh, and... This is a buzzword these days, and you can underline it in your own Bible. Jesus actually says, I hate that. I hate it. And we hear that and we go, ah. And then verse 7 says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So not just to this single church. There's actually going to be seven of them. And we're not going to sidestep any of them. But to all of them and to the church universal here in Bellingham and across this country and across this world, what Jesus has to say to this group of people is universally applicable to each and every one of us sitting inside of this room. And I don't get an exemption because I'm wearing a microphone. I mean, this stuff's been driving me crazy because I've had to ask the question, where do I need to repent? Where do I need to confess that I have allowed something to come between me and my first love? It says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. This is where history and archaeology is so unbelievable. In the center of Ephesus was the temple of Diana or Artemis, where all the nasty stuff was going on. In the center of that temple was a tree. Here's what was interesting about the tree. If you were a convict... You killed somebody, or you stole something, or you defrauded somebody. It didn't matter what you had done. If you could get to Ephesus and touch that tree, no one could prosecute you. You got a free pass. 
you could do whatever you wanted to to another human being, but if you could get to the center of Diana's temple, get out of jail free card. Let me go back. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. My brothers and my sisters, Jesus has trees too. Jesus has a tree in Genesis chapter 1, a tree of life from which all life is transmitted in a way that only God can understand. Jesus has a second kind of tree. And that tree gives repentant sinners, not unrepentant criminals, an opportunity to live. And the verse says, which is in the paradise of God. The closest I've ever gotten to paradise is the grace of Jesus applied to my sin so that I could be washed from the color of scarlet to being as white as snow. That's grace. What's Jesus saying? Don't go chasing the wrong tree. Don't try and get in the center of all that other stuff. No, 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 no. Come to the tree where I set you free. Come to the tree of life, and I don't care how dead you feel. I'll breathe life into you again. Don't go there and try and get a jail out of free card. Come to me, and I'll give you an eternity for free card. What's he asking us to do? Last R word. It's to renew, right? You hear what God is saying and to actually respond. Not just what God's saying to this church, but to all the churches. So I got a question. What's God saying to you? You only have one set of ears. Not what was he saying to your spouse or the person you came with or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad. What's he saying to you? Did he place his gentle, loving finger in the scent of an area of compromise? If he did, here's his word, not mine. Repent. Come back home. Don't chase that empty stuff anymore. It won't fill your heart. Come, come home. Did he remind you of a time when your passion was pure and your calling was clear? Then maybe... Another R word, return. Come back to that moment again. God didn't move. Just come back. Did you hear a warning in there anywhere about an area of your life that's become an idol? Then maybe tonight was just all about realizing, oh, wow, I let something get in between me and my first love. This is not light stuff, is it? Right? Some of you are just like, when are we going to get to the seven-headed beast and the lady riding the dragon? You know? Like, <laughs> she's coming. <laughs> All right? Jesus loves his children enough to confront them, not coddle them. I promised you we would always answer two questions every week. Where's the hope? Well, you could read this and go, God. Can I tell you where the hope is? 
my Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So get a hold of that tree and learn what it means to live free. That's where the hope is. There's no condemnation and repentance. God's waiting on the other side of it saying, I want you to do this so that I can pull you close, so that you can reestablish that first love relationship. This is going to be amazing, but you've got to turn. So that's where the hope is. Second question, where's Jesus? I know where he is. He's waiting on the edge of his throne to restore you. I don't care how far you've drifted away. You are one act of repentance away from That's how it works. We're going to see that in the rest of the book. So let's take a moment. I feel like I've been repenting all week of subtle little stuff that I've just compromised on because I'm a pastor. I wear a microphone. I talk to people about Jesus all the time. Surely I can have a little bit of that. My papa says, he loves me too much. He loves me enough to grab my hand when I reach for it and say, are you sure that's what you want? Don't. So what is it? We all have something. Let's not be arrogant. We all have something. So let's take a few moments together right now. And maybe you can just repent right now and say, God, I was wrong. I got this thing upside down. I've drifted away. I recognize that now. Here I am. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So don't run scared. Run to so we're just going to have a few moments of quiet prayer, and then I'll close. Let's do this. Let's reflect. Let's return. Let's renew. Let's repent. Let's realize that grace is available for all who are willing. I don't know about you. Anybody else want the lampstand to go out? Anybody else want Christ the King to get stuck on a shelf? It doesn't work anymore for me. Sorry. We're the church. Let he who has ears listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father God, whatever it is, may our repentance not be limited to this brief moment. But God, may we realize that repentance is free to your people always. And God, I would say to you, this, this has cut me to the core this week. Because, Father, I, I have realized over the years that I've allowed the opinions of people to shape my words. 
God, I repent of the fact that their opinion at times has meant more than yours. And I ask, would you forgive me for those moments when I did not speak the truth in love? God, would you change that? Rip it out of me because I don't want the lampstand to be removed. God, that's just me. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Lord, whatever it is you're putting your finger on right now, I pray that we would sense your loving touch as you so desperately want that to be taken away so that we can be pure and run to the right tree. God, we don't want to get out of jail free card. We want a card that says, welcome home. You're forgiven. Well done, my good and faithful servant. So Lord, would you stir this up in us? And as you speak to the churches and through the rest of this series, may we who have ears listen to what our Savior says through the messenger to the church universal and the church in Whatcom County. And we pray these things in your precious, holy beautiful, matchless and worthy name and the forgiven of God agreed together with all of their hearts and they said Amen